Today we come to Lord's Day 41 of the Heidelberg Catechism, which is question and answer 108 and 109, explaining to us the significance of the seventh commandment. Let's read these responsively. What is God's will for us in the seventh commandment? That God condemns all unchastity, and that we should therefore detest it wholeheartedly, and live decent and chaste lives within or outside of the holy state of marriage. Question 109. Does God in this commandment forbid only such scandalous sins as adultery? We are temples of the Holy Spirit, body and soul, and God wants both to be kept clean and holy. That is why God forbids all unchaste actions, looks, talk, thoughts, or desires, and whatever may incite someone to them. Let's go to the Lord and ask for his help. Almighty and everlasting God, our Heavenly Father, we acknowledge that we are sinners, conceived and born in sin, unable of ourselves to do any good. But we do repent of our sins and seek your grace to help us in our remaining weaknesses. Through the teaching of your word, which we confess with the church throughout the ages, Satisfy our hunger and quench our thirst with your refreshing truth, that we with all our hearts may love and serve you with our Lord Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit, the one and only true God who lives and reigns forever and ever. Amen. Today we're going to be thinking about the purity of the Lord as a way to inform our own walk in purity as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, one way to speak of the Lord's purity is to talk about his attributes. Um, In theology books, we call this his essential attributes, the things that we can say that are true about his essence, his very being. Well, this is who simply the Lord is. He is Pure. In fact, it's better to say he is purity. He is purity. That's who he simply is. He is completely and eternally free of the corruption of sin. And he cannot be stained by it in any way. There's another way to speak about the purity of the Lord that we're using today that will be hopefully of particular help for us. And that is the purity of his actions. The purity of the acts of the Lord. So both are true, biblically, that the Lord is pure and he acts in purity as well. One follows from the other rather naturally. Uh, But it's important for us to grasp this and and particularly to look at his actions, his pure actions towards us. uh, Because we're looking at the seventh commandment to not commit adultery. And um, as we've learned in previous weeks, where there is a negative command or prohibition, then what is implied with it is a positive command as well. So that's the negative command. You shall not commit adultery. That is the sin to avoid. The positive command that is implied is that we are to be pure. We are to walk in purity, and in particular, as we think about the sin of adultery, underneath that sin, the category of that sin, is sexual purity that is in mind. Um. So we are called in this commandment not only to avoid adultery and all kinds of of sexual sin, but we are to walk as sexually pure, positively speaking, as well. 
Well, this can be true of us because of how the Lord has acted toward us, specifically in terms of his commitment to his people. So today we are thinking about the purity of the Lord in his actions, and that has to do specifically with his total commitment and fidelity to his people. That's kind of the, the, the framework that we're using today to think about the, the purity of God. In other words, he has not given himself to another in any way. He has remained faithful to us, his people. And so he remains totally pure. Well, with that in mind, let's explore with hope and with confidence that, uh, that attribute of the Lord that he has now acted upon also especially in the person of Jesus Christ. And hopefully that will help us along in our own pursuit of godly purity. And the first thing that I want us to consider today is the Lord and his bride. We have to understand this, uh, this spiritual reality that the Lord Jesus Christ has a bride to whom he is totally committed. When we read the story of Adam and Eve, as we did earlier from Genesis chapter 2, we're already being given a picture of the purity of the Lord and of the Son of God himself, since he is eternally existing. From the beginning, from the beginning, marriage shows us God's exclusive commitment to his people, because that's what marriage has always pointed to. Even prior to the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, marriage has always mysteriously pointed to God's exclusive commitment to his people. And uh, God has used the image of marriage to explain this to us. In the Old Testament, God himself is said to be the husband of his people, which means his people are the bride. We saw that in our reading from the prophet Hosea. The Lord says to his covenant people, and we didn't get into the context much, but after his people have totally gone astray, committing spiritual adultery with uh, false lovers, the Baals, that is a word, by the way, that means husband, interestingly enough. There's a very deep theology going on when it comes to uh, idolatry. It's, it is spiritual adultery in more ways than one. And the people have gone after the Baals, and God has now redeemed his people. And he says in Hosea chapter 2, verse 20, I will betroth you to me in faithfulness. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness. I will reestablish this marriage relationship. That has now been signified since the very beginning in the marriage of Adam and Eve and onward. That picture now I'm now going to do for you. Betroth you to myself in faithfulness. But with even more clarity and depth, the New Testament reveals to us that Jesus, the Son of God, is the husband of his beloved bride in a particular way. In a particular way. The institution of marriage reveals the mysterious union of Christ and the church, as Ephesians chapter 5 teaches us. Paul says, um, I'm trying to say to you that this is a profound mystery, and I'm referring to Christ and the church. Jesus is the one, uh, specifically among the Godhead, to enter into this everlasting commitment in remaining faithful to his people. The Lord has always been steadfast to his unfaithful bride, but Jesus has demonstrated this faithfulness in the most profound way possible. 
It is not only that our Lord Jesus Christ in his earthly ministry was completely pure and chaste in his earthly life, although that is an essential part of our salvation. He must be chaste for us to be saved by his merits. But beyond that, in his role and in his office as the husband of his bride, as the head of the household of God, he has drawn us to himself when we have been led astray by false lovers. And he has committed himself to us in order to purify us. He's pursued us. The Lord Jesus Christ, as the husband of his bride, has pursued us and he has saved us from false gods who claim to be lovers but are actually abusers. And the main expression of this holy and pure pursuit of of the Lord Jesus Christ for his people, the main expression of that pursuit is the Lord's death upon the cross because it is there and there alone where the impurities of his people are dealt with and washed away. By his shed blood, you are pure. That is the source of all of our purity and our innocence before the Lord is in the shed blood of Christ. And that act from Jesus Christ is the great act from your faithful God to come for you, to commit to you, to draw you to himself as a faithful husband. Well, this theological background is important because it helps us to see that purity and innocence is commanded of all God's people, uh, married or single, as the catechism points out, and no matter your age, it is incumbent upon all the people of God to pursue the purity of the Lord Jesus Christ. The bride of Christ is primarily a collective term. So when we speak about the bride, we're talking about the entire church. All those who belong to the body of Christ are part of the bride. And so the call to sexual purity is upon us all. Is upon us all. If that is true, then we must never stop contemplating what the Lord Jesus Christ has done for us as our divine husband. This is the only sure ground to stand upon in your obedience to this command. There is no other solid ground to stand upon. So that is the Lord and his bride. There is a deep and profound mystery going on when we speak about adultery and marriage and purity. And it is, uh, we, we must anchor ourselves to these deep things before we move on. But secondly, we consider how to receive the Lord's purity. If he is pure and he has acted on our behalf to cleanse us of all this unrighteousness, how then do we receive this? What, what's it all about? When we believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, whatever belongs to him becomes ours. When we believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, whatever belongs to him becomes ours. That's what it means to be co-heirs with Christ. And so if he is pure in every way, then to receive the Lord Jesus Christ is to receive his purity. Jesus merited an absolutely innocent, spotless, and clean record for you. He did not need it himself. He was already the eternally spotless Son of God. He has merited this for you. That record is what you need. You must have it. And when you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, you receive 
all that belongs to him. It becomes yours now. And this is important because sexual sin is of a unique category. It, it really is. It can burden the conscience uh, in, a, in a terrible way. And it can cause chaos, as we see in the world around us. It can cause chaos in ways that other sins don't seem to. And so we have to remember that faith in Christ brings you the gift of purity as well. It is one of the great gifts of the gospel that Jesus Christ has won for you. Don't act as though this is a unique sin to, a unique sin to such an extent that the gospel does not fully supply what you need. In God's sight, you are spotless and innocent and clean because that is the record that Christ has won for you. It doesn't matter how little or how, how large you perceive your sexual sins to be. Our Lord Jesus Christ has acted with utter purity on your behalf. And if you've received him by faith, then you have now as your possession the purity of the Lord. In Revelation chapter 19, we read that when Christ returns and fulfills his kingdom in all its glory, it will be celebrated with a great feast called the Marriage Supper of the Lamb. Because we are his bride right now, and he is currently in the process of washing us. Washing us with the water of the word. And he is in the process of of making us spotless and, and blemish free for this holy day. When Christ comes and we sit down together with our divine husband and and feast at the marriage supper of the Lamb. We read in verse 9 of Revelation 19, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Well, that invitation only comes through Christ. We are invited because we are the bride that is in union with Jesus Christ. There's the parable about the wedding banquet. And there's people who have made their way into the banquet and they're not wearing the right garments. And the, uh, the master of the house, who is the Lord, it's, you know, representing the Lord in that parable, says, how did you get in here? You're not properly dressed. You must be invited. You must be invited to this heavenly supper. And that invitation comes through Christ. And you must change your garments, spiritually speaking. You must put on the, the righteous and pure garments of Christ in order to have a seat at that table. And if you've received him, then you are invited. The invitation is yours. To have a seat at that banquet means that we are covered. All our infidelity and all our sexual impurity is fully done away with. So brothers and sisters, do not go to battle against sexual impurity and all of its temptations without first knowing what your faithful Savior has done for you. You cannot arm yourself in this spiritual fight without first remembering what Jesus Christ has done in his love, his great love for you. He has loved you with the best possible kind of husband-like love. The best possible. Raised to the infinite degree because he's almighty God in the flesh. He does not just demand that you be pure, but by his own work on your behalf, he declares you to be pure. So you receive the purity of the Lord. Lastly, uh, how how do we now practice this purity? Um, Christ, having redeemed you by his blood, is also renewing you by his Holy Spirit. That's how we begin the series in the Ten Commandments. You are both justified and sanctified. You're redeemed by the blood renewed by the Spirit. And the Lord Jesus Christ has redeemed you from all of your sexual sin 
with his blood, all those sins, past, present, and future. And he's also renewing you by his Holy Spirit. And so the command upon us with regard to the the category of sexual sin and adultery, the command upon us is to put to death the old self and to make alive the new. As it is always the case with all the commandments. We put to death the old self, which was in Adam and dead in Adam. And we put on the new self, which is alive in Jesus Christ. The seventh commandment speaks of adultery in particular. And as we've, uh, as we've learned how to interpret these commandments, we recognize that implied under this category is to avoid all sexual sin in thought, in word, and in deed. The act of adultery, the, the act of adultery is worse than desiring it in your heart, but... Our Lord teaches that lust is a kind of inner adultery. It is a sin. And so even our inner life that is hidden from the world, even our thoughts and our desires must be pure. Our Lord memorably says in Matthew chapter 5, if your eye causes you to sin, then pluck it out. This is metaphorical language first. Let's get that straight. Uh, There have been some unfortunate uh, folks in church history who... Did not take it metaphorically, uh, but it is metaphorical language that it's teaching us to cut off the sources and causes of the act, the, the act of adultery. Okay, you, cut off, you cut it off at its source. What is the cause? Get it out. Pluck it out. So let us cut off first wicked teaching concerning human sexuality. We must cut off all wicked teaching about human sexuality, because we live in a time of sexual chaos. It is chaotic when it comes to this category and this topic. So much so that the basic Christian teachings on these things are not only seen as backwards, but now they're called harmful. They're called, uh, they're called bigoted and every other pejorative term you could think of. But that basic Christian teaching is that the human race was created in God's image Male and female, he created them. That's the first thing we have to remember. As an objective and not fluid category. That, that is, that we, are, we are created with dignity in God's image as those who are either male or female, uh, objectively speaking, and that only those two parties may participate in marriage. And that to do otherwise is some kind of abomination toward the institution of marriage. Um, and that it is in that context alone where holy sexual desires may be acted upon. We're created in God's image as male and female. Those are the two parties that enter into marriage, and that is the gracious context in which the Lord has provided a place for sexual desires to be acted upon. That has been the basic teaching of the church from the beginning. But those are now under fire, even among professing Christians, those very those most basic of teachings. There is nothing controversial there at all, no matter what the world says. So brothers and sisters, do not give an inch on these teachings. Let, let God be true and every man be considered a liar. Especially because many lives and families have been terribly harmed by believing ungodly teachings about human sexuality. 
And some have always been around. You know, adultery in one form or the other and sexual sin in one form or the other has always been around ruining lives and families. But the promotion of it in the Western world and in our own nation right now is uh, truly awful. And in uh, numbers that I don't think we've ever seen as a society is uh, tearing people apart. So cut off wicked teachings about human sexuality. Um, Come with discernment when we hear the words the world speak on this topic. Let us also cut off our own wicked sexual desires. The church can talk a big game when it talks about uh, cutting off wicked teachings. And we ought to speak with clarity to those things. But we also must recognize that we have wicked sexual desires within ourselves that also must be cut off. There are many helpful ways to address sinful behaviors. So, you know, what you do outwardly. All kinds of helpful resources out there. Accountability softwares, helpful books and resources and groups and and more. But it's all for nothing if we do not address the desire which comes from the heart. And there's confusion about even this in, in churches today. So we have to speak with clarity about this. Even the desire for sexual sin is itself sin. And we must turn away from it. So bring it to the Lord in confession. Acknowledge it. Don't hide it from the face of Almighty God, but, but confess it. Target those particular desires in your prayers. God already sees, and you need not be ashamed as your first father Adam was ashamed. Don't run from him, but acknowledge all your sinful desires before the Lord. And ask the Holy Spirit to continue the grace of this renewal. The renewal of your mind takes your whole lifetime. Um, and so call upon the Holy Spirit to give him the help that you need until you find that you are indeed hating all of your sins and more and more running away from them. Loved ones in Christ, the Lord Jesus is a faithful husband and you are members of his bride. And he has acted in purity and in utter commitment for you. If you've trusted in him, you can be fully assured that his purity has become your own. So now mirror his purity and with his almighty help, begin to live decent and pure lives for the sake of his glory. Amen. Amen. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we ask now that you would write your word upon our hearts. Help us to be not mere hearers, but doers also. For the sake of Jesus Christ, our Lord, who with you and the Holy Spirit are one God, forever blessed. Amen.